I do believe that we as a nation are at a time of great crisis, a time of crisis in which I believe there's messiahs that are presented that have no cross. And I do believe that we live at a time when we need the Christ of the cross, which is real, genuine, saving Christianity. So I would ask you to turn in God's word to the suffering servant who saves sinners, Isaiah chapter 52, beginning with verse 13, all the way through Isaiah 53, 12. We have this wonderful song of, of the servant that is suffering. We have this amazing uh, story that is really the story of our Lord Jesus Christ. His commencement, his continuation, and his climax is all there in this amazing song of the suffering servant. So when we come to this passage, I think there's a certain romance of the New Testament. I believe the New Testament, the apostles were in love with this very passage. It's the most quoted passage of Isaiah. It's that which seems to just be bleed through different parts of the New Testament. There it is, Isaiah, 53rd of Isaiah. And so when we come to this passage, I want you to see that it's really the sunlit summit of the whole of the Old Testament in one sense. If you read through the whole of it, this is like that summit of it all. It goes beyond other parts. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in this extraordinary way. And so when we read it, I would ask that we would have that prayer that we would see Jesus, that we would be in a sense beneath the cross of Christ, experience his being very real in all that's here in this passage of Scripture. There's a passage I think that's good for us to read before we read it. John chapter 12. Hold your finger there in Isaiah 53. And John chapter 12 gives us something of what took place there with Isaiah as we have this word given to us in John 12, beginning with verse 37. We read, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. And then here's Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, this is Isaiah chapter 6, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Verse 41. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus, glory, and spoke about him. And so we read this passage of scripture. We should be praying, Lord, give me a vision. Eyes to see Christ. There were those who saw all the miracles, all the miraculous signs, and they could not see. They would not see the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be young people here or old people here who have never really seen the Lord Jesus Christ. What we want to do is read 
this amazing song of Jesus. And then after that, see the servant who he is. And then his suffering. And then that he saves sinners such as we are. Very quickly, we come to this passage of scripture where we ask for God's help to see him who is real. Let's pray together. Father, we stagger as we come to this passage of Scripture. It's beyond all of our understanding that some 700 years before the very birth of Christ, here is the very commencement of his life. Here is that continuation and climax of who he is. And we pray, O Lord, to help us to have eyes to see Jesus. We do believe there's no one more real than the Lord Jesus Christ. We do believe that There's nothing so horrible as those who have eyes and yet cannot see and believe into the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray, oh Lord, give us eyes, give us vision afresh to see the Lord Jesus this morning. That's our prayer. We pray that you'd show us by your light, the one who is the light, the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. As we would read this passage of Scripture, I do believe it's important to kind of look back a little bit. And the New Testament, as I said, it's almost like a romance with this passage, as it has it in different parts of the New Testament. And it just bleeds forth all through how the apostles love this passage of Scripture. You know that passage of, of Acts chapter 8, There is this strange moment when there is this, uh, what we would call, such an important man in the church in Jerusalem, Philip, and suddenly God takes him out on a desert road. I mean, I've been down that road going to Gaza all the way, on the way to Beersheba, and there uh, you kind of, there's an amazing kind of desert there, and we can almost identify it a little bit with our own desert, and... uh, not much uh, what we'd call bushes and things. It's pretty desolate. And God brings Philip out on this road, and it seems like he's a runner. He's running along. And he runs along the side of a chariot. And you remember there is this Ethiopian, this black man that's quite important, but somehow or another he's reading out loud from our very passage of Scripture. Interesting. It's such a passage that it would be read out loud that we have this one going along so that he would be able to explain what it says. So we come that we have the privilege of hearing this. And yes, we have the explanation from the New Testament, the apostles themselves, of what this passage is all about. So here, let's look for a moment Who is the servant? Now, rabbis have tried to deny this song of the servant as being an individual. They say it's kind of a representative of of, uh, the collective nation of Israel. They would say, oh, it's not an individual really. But as you look at this passage and read through it in its entirety, I went through it the other night and, and I counted he, 
him and his 49 times. It's not Israel that's in the feminine. It's not a nation, but it's very much an individual. Robert Alter, who is a Jewish scholar, his three volumes on the Old Testament that I often read, he has this statement. He says, a recurrent Jewish Jewish view sees him as a representation of collective Israel. But, but, the details of the passage argue for the biography of an individual. And that individual, with all the clarity that could possibly be given 700 years before he was ever born, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came. This individual is there, and the one that had been told about all those many years that would be as the seed of the woman who would crush Satan's head, the one who was told who was going to come, and this one, yes, in a wonderful way, would sprinkle the nations with blessing and cleansing. This is Jesus Christ who has come. This is the one that is spoken of here as my servant. Through Isaiah, we find four different songs of my servant. Isaiah 42 speaks of my servant that I have chosen that I have formed, that I have fashioned with a purpose. My servant, he is the one who is, we can truly say as we look and see him, he has been fashioned by God, elected by God before the foundation of the world to be the savior of sinners. This one that is told about here is the one who is my servant, as we have in Isaiah 52, verse 13, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. And his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their Mouths because of him, for what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. There's something here amazing. This amazing picture that's given here of one who has been called and equipped as my servant. He belongs to God. And that's Isaiah 42. As again, Another passage of Isaiah speaks of my servant, and another, my servant, and here, my servant. That's who he is. Jesus is the servant. He is the servant who is God's royal king. He is that servant who is truly God's mouthpiece, God's prophet, yes, and our priest, so that we would have a mediator between us and God. This is Jesus Christ here spoken of. He is the one that is so clearly spoken of as my servant. 
But the focus here is really on his suffering. His suffering is so very real here. We had an unusual experience in Cornerstone. First at our annual family conference that we had up at Prescott Pines, I I remember asking Dr. Truman Davis. He stood six feet, nine inches, and I always remember his giving me a hug. His pin would always hit me right in the face. And uh, this, uh, this surgeon with these large hands known throughout our valley and his, his surgical abilities. He gave us the sufferings of Christ from a surgeon's viewpoint. And I remember family conference, the weeping that took place just through the whole of the camp as we listened to Dr. Davis display to us something of the reality of his physical suffering. And as you come to this passage... Look through the passage with me. It speaks of him being disfigured, marred, despised. Look at those words. A man of sorrows, smitten, rejected, afflicted, crushed. Punishments upon him, wounds, oppressed, death, cut off from the land of the living. Numbered with transgressors. Yet he was innocent. He was innocent. We have those verses. Uh, Note them down. It's good to have those verses that speak of his being without sin. We read from 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22, really quoting from Isaiah 53, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. And yet, there is this tremendous suffering that's so very vivid to us, like one from whom men hide their faces, numbered with transgressors, he's identified with sin and sinners. Verse 9, it says, no violence was there, no deceit was in his mouth. Do you remember when Jesus stood before the Jews? Pilate speaks forcefully to the Jews and he says, I find no fault in this man, nothing with which I can charge him without sin. Why? The Apostle Paul gives us those authoritative words when he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become or might become the righteousness of God. Look at the passage again with me, just briefly. Look with your own eyes. If you look there in verse 4, what does it say? It speaks of surely he took up our infirmities. Verse 5 Notice it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or come down just a little ways. Uh, The end of verse 8. What does it have there? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. There is that sense right at the very end of 
Isaiah 53, it says, For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There's something here of his wonderful work of being a mediator between God and ourselves. He is, in that wonderful sense, the Savior of sinners. Isn't that at the very core of all of real Christianity? Oh, men present great messiahs. They proclaim we have the answer for the world. And they come along with all this, but they're without the cross. And without the cross, we have no salvation. There's no salvation without the Christ of the cross. So we come, not only that he is the servant suffering, but he is the one who saves sinners such as I am and as such as you are. There's a beauty to this. He saves sinners. He really does save sinners. That's real. If you go through the passage, it speaks of how he's going to prosper. It speaks of his satisfaction to justify many. There is a beauty to this, a people for his glory. First of all, to note, there's a divine purpose. The Lord crushed him. The Lord brought this upon him to bring salvation to his people. He was appointed before the foundation of the world for this work on the cross. He was appointed, yes, to die, to give his life a ransom for many. There is a reality that he accomplishes the salvation of a number that no one can number. It's as the sands of the sea his people, and he saves them by grace, grace, grace. Yes. But notice also, it's very important, I believe, to realize that this is not just a great statement of what he does, but I believe there is a sense in which, as you read through this passage, there should be something that begins to pulsate within your mind that he calls, that he summons you. To himself. Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me will never, never be cast out. There's good news here. There's a summons. You are summoned. I hope for everyone here there's something of that reality that you're gripped by this. He calls you to come to have faith into Jesus Christ. To know him, I came some 60 years ago. I had the privilege of washing pots and pans at Prescott Pines Baptist Campgrounds for about four months. We'd have 150 to 200 campers in the same kitchen with my dear friend John Altheltis. What a summer. He washed the dishes with this big hot machine, and I was in that hot sink with those pans scrubbing we heard these messages, this invitation, this summons to come to faith in Jesus Christ. He summons you, yes, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is a beauty. Read with me those words of the Isaiah 53, 6. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you remember that Ethiopian? That foreigner? He was a eunuch. He was forbidden even to go into the temple in Jerusalem. An outcast. And to think once again... You know, it was kind of a strange moment because here is something, what we'd have to say, revival, an amazing thing taking place in Jerusalem and 20,000 people or so are coming to Christ and the church is being formed and there's all this great and wonderful things happening in Jerusalem and here's this runner running along a chariot and he runs along and he hears this, this black man reading what he didn't understand from the 53rd of Isaiah and you say, Why in the world is he out there, this one guy who's an outcast, a eunuch? There's a beauty to that. God does call us individually. Individually. He summons us by name. He knows us. But there's also a beauty, I think, especially for us as we're here, we can look back in history and and we can see a Cyprian who stood against the bishop in Rome. We can look back and see a Tertullian who was a theologian. We can see in that same African background that came from, yes, that land far away, the end of the world at that time, there was to come a people, one like Augustine, this grand theologian of Christ's grace to sinners such as we are. God has his purposes. He is at work in a wonderful way. Why was Philip there on a road that's a desert road going to the end of the world? Because God has his purpose in all of our lives. Outcasts answer the call. Unlikely sinners come to Christ. We're all unlikely sinners that come to Christ. This man, this Ethiopian, he wanted to be identified with Jesus. He answered the call. You remember, he came, they came to some water, and he said the words he used were, why shouldn't I be baptized? He wanted to be obedient. He wanted to identify with Christ. He wanted to identify with this Savior of sinners such as he was. I ask the question, what do you say to someone who's seeking Jesus Christ? Sometimes I think we have this little, almost like a ditty, ask them to come into your heart and pray a prayer. But I think there's something here when we really read the scriptures that's deeper than that. Someone can kind of ask Jesus to come into their life as a helpsy, something that kind of is an emotional thing that takes place. But really the scriptures teach us with a commandment to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or that, that believe onto, into the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an identity that we come to him, and he is all things for us. We come to him, a true coming to Christ is one in which he is Lord of our life, not just an addition in our life that might be a help to us some time or another, but he is the one who is our great hope for life itself, 
nothing else. Nothing else should take his place. One of the brief novels that had an impact on my early Christian life was by John Steinbeck. I don't recommend his philosophy or theology in any way, but his book called The Pearl is a powerful read. Really, you know, it, it's a story of a young couple, uh, Kino and, and Juana. They have a little baby, and if you remember the story, there's a, a scorpion that drops down into the crib, and, and they realize their poverty when they try to get a doctor to attend their baby, and they have no money, and so the doctor's not interested. And there's all that kind of goes with poverty and everything that they were struggling with. And, and he had lived as a, a diver, as his father and his grandfather had lived with this little boat. And so what he did, we went out to his diving place, and he went down and the story tells is how he found the world pearl, this great pearl, and the size of it was just beyond uh, anything else that they'd ever seen. And suddenly he thought, this is the answer to it all. The doctor will attend us. Oh, now my little baby someday will be able to read books, and they'll know what is in books, and, and out of the poverty that we've lived in for generations, this is the answer. We have it, this pearl. This world pearl. And if you've read the story, you know all the sadness that comes. Suddenly he had all these false friends. And, and it's really a sad story. It it's, uh, finally comes to the very place at the end where that pearl that was almost the dream of all that he thought he needed for life. It says there at the end of the book, and I quote, And Kino drew back his arm and flung the pearl with all his might. He got rid of it. All that he thought was the answer for life was nothing but sadness and sorrow. Everything else you put in Christ's place will not be for me to live. Is this or whatever it may be will not be life. It will bring death, sorrow, and sadness. There is this one wonderful, wonderful reality that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. This Ethiopian, you remember, he was, yes, identified with Jesus Christ, baptized, yes, in that wonderful sense of blessings that were to come, yes, all the way down through the centuries, there was a reality that was to take place. Are you this morning seeking him? There are those who are seeking the Lord, and they have many questions. How old is the earth? If only I could answer that question. Or how will coming to Christ affect my daily life? How will it affect my family? What will my people at work think? Oh, I have another dozen questions. I'm trying to answer them all. Here they are. I have another one. I have another one. What is it all going to be like? And you know what needs to take place? You need to take that pearl and fling it. Turn your back on everything else and come to Christ. The answer to all your questions is not some philosophical solution or more and more and more and more study. It's a person, Jesus Christ. He really is the pearl of great price. He really is the pearl that... 
will give to you life everlasting. He calls you by name to come to him. As we come to the Lord's table, we come and remember what he has done for us. His suffering as the servant that saves sinners such as we are. There is a beauty to this. My seeking him, but acknowledges he has been seeking me all along. There's an old hymn written in 1904. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant who saves sinners such as we are. Salvation is of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do stagger just to come into your presence. We are in awe that you are God and we are your creatures who have sinned against you. As Christians, we come to this table this morning and remember that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was identified with us in all the ugliness of our sin. It was all imputed to him. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Lord, touch our hearts afresh. We do need to see Jesus this morning as your people. Then, Lord, we would... We would pray, oh God, that we would, in these moments together, be able to be beneath the cross of Jesus and see the beauty of Christ and worship. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.